0: He has no remorse. He slept like a baby last night. Tombs County Sheriff Charles Durst. Filing advice contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Guys, and welcome to Violin Vice. My name is Audie Griffith.
1: And I'm John John.
0: Hello. If you guys could do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, and give us five stars, we'd really, really appreciate it. And it would be a great, great belated Christmas present.
1: <gasps> I love Christmas presents.
0: I do too. And John and I got pretty good ones. We got Crocs and Socks this year.
1: I might be wearing them now me too
0: so <laughs> <laughs> they make good slippers
1: <laughs> they do very much
0: yeah so speaking of christmas and everything Uh-oh. we are covering today the santa claus georgia murders Uh-oh. Ooh. uh oh uh yeah, so are you guys excited? Cause I am, and I'm not, cause they're pretty god awful. So, but it makes for a really good, a really good episode.
1: Okay, I just started to get onto the Christmas bandwagon. Is this going to make it not?
0: It's gonna be very sad, but oh, no. the town itself is pretty cool, and the family in question before stuff happened was really cool. There's a lot of cool things about it. It's just sad.
1: Oh, okay. Well let's hear about it.
0: So let's cater to those post Christmas blues and get into it. Alright. So the majority of this comes from Murderpedia. I love using Murderpedia. It's it's a great website. Um and this You're
1: you're definitely on a list.
0: I know. I really am. <laughs> But at least it's 2020 and we can't really travel.
1: That's fair. It's very fair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So Santa Claus, Georgia, just kind of going into it, is a very themed town. Uh, they have a North Pole sign near the post office. A lot of their roads are named after uh, Christmas characters. And it's only a village of 300 residents and it's located about 70 miles west of georgia and of course it's named santa claus so it's a pretty pretty cool town
1: so it's not in georgia
0: it is it's just 70 miles west of savannah georgia
1: oh savannah okay
0: i might have forgotten to say savannah
1: still yeah Uh, north pole in georgia doesn't I might use an old robot phrase at this point, but it does not compute.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, jan you know how small our town was of like 2,600 people. This is only about 300, so it's about the size of Trigo.
1: Yeah, and they had a good restaurant, a canoe place, a couple gas stations.
0: Yep. And
1: that was about it. Yeah, a couple hit or miss stuff. Okay.
0: Yep. Alright, so I'm going to just kind of just dig right into it. I'm going to read a little bit from this article because it does a really good job describing the town. High above the gravel road where migrant workers planted Vidalia sweet onions and rows of plowed furrows on Dasher Street live the Daniels family. The one-story red-brick house with a huge oblong chimney protruding from the front was nestled snugly at the end of a cul-de-sac about a half-mile of lonely road from US 1 in the town of Santa Claus. The village of 300 residents located some 70 miles west of Savannah, Georgia was named after Father Christmas. A A sign at the edge of town hailed Santa Claus as the city that loves children, which in all honesty is a little creepy.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's something you wanna just advertise in this day and age. No. Any adult who says they love children has like a creepy undertone to the understanding. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway, seven children lived in a picture postcard house, including three foster children that the Danielses were planning to adopt. Danny, a rural mailman working out of Lyons, met attractive Kim Lamp some seven years ago. Despite the fact that she had been a drug addict living out of her car, he helped her fight off the addiction and they were married. They liked it there in Santa Claus and were highly religious and well-liked throughout the community. Kim Daniels, 33, who became a foster child after seeing her father slain, lost her own children to the state custody while she was a teenager. She lived in her little car, deep into drugs and alcohol until she met Danny Daniels, 47, at the time, about six years ago. Married to the gentle letter carrier, she fought off her problems, got her children back, and devoted her life to church and to the children. In her own words, others who needed love. So she kind of just turned her life around, was very religious, like, you know, fostering several kids, adopted a couple, like, were really just there to, like fix issues she had as a kid and make sure others didn't suffer the same so just a really good couple
1: sort of like paying it forward after she got paid forward herself
0: yeah very very much so Mm. sounds nice yeah so on wednesday she and danny celebrated their fifth wedding anniversary in a comfortable brick house at the foot of dasher road they're with their seven children. Danny's adopted daughter, Jessica, 16. Kim's three children, Amber, 12, and eight year old twins, Brooke and Bryant, and then three foster children, Amanda, 9, Corey, 4, and Gabriel, 10 months. So a lot of children there.
1: Sounds like a packed house.
0: Yeah, I'm going to just say their names one more time just so you know who's who. Jessica is 16. Amber is 12. Eight year old twins, Brooke and Bryant, and then three foster children, Amanda, nine, Corey, four, and Gabriel, ten months.
1: Hmm. So, a lot of preteen energy going on there.
0: Yeah, very packed household. I mean, really ranging in ages. Oh, yeah. Their house was wedged between two catfish ponds and backdrop by tall pine trees and tangling grapevines. Neighbors would regularly come to fish and pick grapes there as well. But These things helped quell the reverberating booms of the shotgun blast from neighbors on Rudolph Way, Dancer Street, and as far away as Slay Street. It happened after midnight on Thursday, December 3rd of 1997. Around 4 o'clock in the morning, a farmer and his wife were awakened when their dog wouldn't stop barking. They looked out their window and saw three children walking down the road in their nightgowns. They called police who arrived within minutes at their Carter Pond House Road the three tykes ages eight to ten were shivering and abandoned on the side of rural bacon county road some 45 miles from their home on dasher street and they were all in shock but coherent they said that they had been taken from their santa claus home earlier that morning the oldest girl had been raped and sodomized so really really rough The frightened children told police where they lived and two deputies were dispatched to the ranch-style house arriving shortly before dawn. The morning stillness was made even more eerie by the uh, incessant insect sounds and by the occasional car passing on Highway 1, making the deputies feel even more uneasy when they called into the house and no one answered. The door was ajar and yet no creature was stirring in or around the house. It was pitch black inside. After several fruitless attempts to arouse somebody, the deputies thought they had better go inside and investigate. They switched on the lights, using their flashlights so not to disturb the scene. And uh, to not disturb any fingerprints, they cautiously went from room to room, guns at the ready. When they reached the master bedrooms, the deputies reeled back in horror at the atrocity that lay before them. 43 year old danny daniels lay sprawled beside his 33 year old wife they were drenched in blood the heavy caliber murder weapon had done its work with a shattering effect down the hall officers found jessica daniels a 16 year old adopted daughter of danny from a previous marriage in life she was quite beautiful but in death her appearance was pretty grotesque still in a nightgown she was stretched out extensively on a blood-stained carpet an apparent shot at close range in the electric atmosphere of the joining room the policeman found poor eight-year-old bryant a natural son of daniel from a previous marriage he had been sleeping with his teddy bear in his bedroom when someone shot his face After gaining their composure, deputies carefully checked the victims for the faintest signs of life. They found none, and making sure that the perpetrator was not on premises, the deputies searched the house to make sure there were no more bodies. But there were. Huddled in a closet, trembling like abandoned puppies, they found Corey, age 4, Gabe, 10 months, both of their foster children. Taking the children with them, the deputies cautiously retraced their steps outside the house, not wishing to disturb any of the crime scene evidence. The police were extremely shocked about what had happened in their normally peaceful Santa Claus town. Nothing of this magnitude had ever occurred before, but because all the pandemonium and hysteria that would follow, authorities knew it would be a while before they could unsort this melee. It was a wild, chaotic night for police who discovered that the killer gained entrance through an open window in the rear of the house. After killing casually in a way that would defy comprehension, he left without taking any of the Daniels' worldly possessions with them, nor had, he had the tidy house been ransacked. During Saturday morning, police learned from the surviving children that they were awakened by bursts of fire before being taken as hostages. He drove them out... Into the boonies where he raped the oldest girl, then drove them 45 miles away and turned them loose on Bacon County Road. The children described their kidnapper's car as a black man with tinted windows. All points bulletin flashed across the airlines with the precaution that the suspect was to be considered armed and dangerous. As the investigators would soon learn, the marriage seemed placid and ordinary enough, and the Daniels were socially popular. Nothing much happened in their lives until the intruder crept in their house and murdered them for no apparent reason. Toombs County Sheriff Charles Durst was located and notified of the carnage at the Daniels' house. In a switch of a hurry, he commanded the area sealed off from all unauthorized personnel and recognized this as an official crime scene. Homicide officers arrived abruptly accompanied by a medical examiner, a crime scene technician, and a deputy district attorney. Each of the victims, the coroner observed, had been shot in the head execution style and could not have been a threat to the the intruder. Danny Daniels appeared to have been shot in the back of the head, probably never knew what hit him. Tissue, blood, and bone and brain matter had been dispersed throughout the room as a result of the force of the powerful shotgun. His younger wife had been shot in the face, resulting in severe disfigurement. It would also appear that she had been awakened by the first blast that killed her husband and might have seen who had killed her. Little Bryant... Who had also been shot point blank was still asleep, clinging to his teddy bear, so he did not awake. The female victim in the hallway had obviously been running from her uh, attacker. There was a lot of blood in the bedrooms that authorities couldn't help but wonder why there weren't more bloody footprints. They also found several eleven hundred Remington shotgun shells laying on the floor in each bedroom where the murders occurred. The cartridges laying on the beds besides Daniel and Kim had tissue fragments adhering to them. After the scene was carefully photographed in both color and black and white, then videotaped, crime lab technicians collected blood and bodily fluid samples, which they cautiously marked according to the source and location. Next, they vacuumed for trace evidence of hair and clothing fiber, using divided filter bags for each location, and searched for identifiable latent fingerprints. When the criminalists were finished with the bodies in the crime scenes, morgue drivers placed the corpses inside the body bags and removed them one at a time to a waiting morgue wagon. A small gathering of disbelieving neighbors looked on from beyond yellow tape barriers. The frightful looking body haulers left for the morgue where a definitive post mortem would be performed. While sheriff's investigators and crime lab technicians searched for clues and collected evidence at the crime scene over the next few hours, the sheriff and several Tombs County deputies questioned neighbors in search of the killer's identity. Unknown to them, the three children had already provided that information that ultimately broke the case wide open. Whereas the identification of the killer had been made in a relatively easy manner, Toombs County prosecutor Rick Malone told a hastily gathering group of reporters that authorities were still investigating the girl's accounts and released very few details. He said they weren't positive what triggered the vicious midnight attack against the family. We do not think it was a random attack. We know, w- we know that he did know them, said Malone. It seems he was a friend of the family or at least knew them, which in this small town was not hard to do as they were very popular and outgoing in their community. Suddenly, the little community named by an entrepreneur to attack tourism was on the map. The little town, known for its Christmas season decorations and community-wide display of luminaries, suddenly came alive with out-of-town curiosity seekers. Everything pointed to the inconceivable. A man named Jerry Heidler had entered the house and started shooting at the random for no apparent reason. Maybe something else had happened. Only the suspect knew at that point what the something else was. Theories and speculation abounded from the once happy and seen Georgia City, now unbelievably stunned by a shocking mass murder. It was almost too much to believe. Things that just didn't fit into the normality of a tranquil town called Santa Claus. Most of the notorious crimes occurred closer to Savannah, nearly 70 miles away, or Charleston on the coast. It was a frightening thought, but maybe one person had the primary target, and the others were assassinated because they were potential witnesses. But if this were true, why didn't the killer get rid of the three children he let go? Surely he must have known that they could identify him. Several theories were taken into consideration by lawmen, as it happens in every case, and each auspicious idea was pursued to its limits. During the first critical hours of the Manhattan hunt for Jerry Scott Heidler, shifted into full gear with uniformed patrolmen and Plains Closeman fretting out across Bacon County where he was last pinpointed clear to Alma where his family lived. As far as the murder cases were concerned the hunt for Jerry Heidler was not very exciting. Georgia Bureau of Investigation Agents Jerry Rose and Bill Butler were distra- dispatched to Alma where Heidler had roots. Behind the house was a street where the van sat the GBI spokesman uh blackhead said jerry heidler was walking out in front of the door as the policeman car pulled in to the front of the house they made eye contact and heidler turned and ran back inside the house agent rose and butler radioed for backup then they ran to the back of the house to prevent a possible escape at that point jerry heidler's brother came out and told officers he was the one that went into the house bacon county sheriff detectives answering the backup call arrived in initiated a search of the house they found heidler huddled on the crawl space beneath the home when heidler refused to come out two officers with drawn guns crawled and dragged him out like literally dragged the guy out like he just refused to go it was yeah very very like think toddler not wanting to leave this door that that is basically what happened here
1: oh okay
0: they arrested him with an outstanding warrant of probation violation. Heidler's brother was arrested, again, for obstructing justice and lodged w- without bail in Bacon County Jail along with his brother, since, you know, he told the officers that he was the one that came out of the house. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, December 9th of 1997, the funeral services for the slain family were held at First United Methodist Church of Leon's after the bodies were released for burial by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab in Atlanta. Danny Daniels, the mailman who taught Sunday school at Mount Vernon Pentecostal Church, lay in a brightly varnished wooden casket at the far left of the church surrounded by flowers. To his right... His wife, Kim, lay in a white casket adorned with white and pink carnations. The third casket held Jessica. Her playmates and school friends passed by solemnly, each in turn placed a kissed red rose on her casket. The teeniest casket at the far end held the body of Bryant. From pulpit, the Reverend R- Ray Wood, who was the Daniels pastor at Mount Vernon, described Bryant as an energetic child whose aim in life was to drive the church bus. So he wanted to be a bus driver.
1: Hmm, this is, you're right. This is making me sad.
0: I'm really sorry, guys. But um, the family invited Heidler into the church, and he had lived with them in their home briefly in the past few months. Wood told the massive congregation that filed into the church to say goodbye to the slaughtered family. He didn't have to steal a van. If he had been in need, the price of the phone call, brother Danny and sister Kim would have driven to Alma to get him. That's the kind of people that they were. So if I didn't make this clear, Heidler stole that the family van.
1: Oh, like he got into the house, killed them, stole their van, took the kids, dropped them off?
0: Yeah, like abandoned the kids out in the woods after he raped uh-huh.
1: the one okay
0: yep rev wood told the teary-eyed and sobbing congregants we'll never again hear sister kim say and play the piano or family singing in the chorus where the killer was concerned you may hate his deed but you better love his soul they were scattered shouts of amen from the congregation so like you know hate what he did but you know try to forgive him i guess
1: But, like, it was scattered, so there were some that agreed and some that didn't.
0: Yep. Mm. The five children curiously left behind by the killer were in the front pews protected from the media by police and bodyguards. Twenty pallbearers took up the remaining seats behind them. Homicide detectives continued to probe the background of the lives of the killer and his victims, trying to determine if some personal motive existed. One streak broke through in the dark... Clouds surrounding the case it wasn't much of a lead at the onset a detective chief in charge of the investigation revealed a motive that appeared to be moderately different from the nascent reconstruction of the crime which had been on a very informative uh very finite information from the surviving victims since they were all children now a relative leaked to detectives that jessica had broke up a broke off a brief romantic affair she was having with Heidler and that may have triggered the nightmare. Although many in Santa Claus didn't believe the growing speculation and increasing wildness of the rumors, it would explain everything. It wouldn't be the first time a spurned lover vented his anger on the entire family. They had a boyfriend-girlfriend affair, said Sheriff Durst. He refused to elaborate any further. Many of the mourners had come to directly to the church from heidler's first court appearance before tombs county magistrate ezra Aaron, who asked the snugly handcuffed suspect if he was understood the charges of multiple murders kidnapping and burglary and all the horror-struck courtroom heidler kept his eye down eyes downcast and as he answered in sullen dull monotone yes sir no sirs when Heidler said he didn't understand what could happen to him, the judge, without lifting his face from the papers before him, said you could be executed. A statement recalled by the GBI agents who interrogated Heidler was a chilling one. Without flinching one iota, Heidler told them I killed them all. One agent, Lee Sweat, said Heidler was not especially emotional about his confession, nor did he show any signs of remorse. He was quiet, sweet said. He was responsive from the very beginning. He told me that he killed the Daniels family. While Heidler's attorneys were feverishly trying to get his confession thrown out of the evidence, developing information had gleaned from the surviving children who sat in their nightgowns untangling the web of mystery for the Bacon County sheriffs. Otherwise, the whole horrible story might have been lost in the darkness of history. The children said that they were awakened by ear-splitting gunshots. The man who had dated their sister, Jessica, entered the bedroom and took them with them in a van. Saying a burglar broke in and your parents told me to get you out. So the children followed. He took them far away from home and they were crying. He put them on a desert, desert uh, deserted dark road and they were frightened. The girls did not know at the time the extreme grossness of the case. They had no idea a portion of their lives was gone forever. Heidler's stories as it related to the GBI agents was that he used a stepladder in the garden to hoist himself into the bathroom window, enter the Daniels' home. He shot Bryant first, unloaded the shotgun, then Jessica as she ran towards him, apparently while running to alert her parents. He then shot Kim and Danny in quick succession. Special Agent Dean McNess said that it seemed like a dream to Heidler when he wanted and he wanted him and Agent Sweat to get into his dream with him. So he was kind of out of it, I guess, when he was retelling it, is what I got from that.
1: So it was sort of like in... Like a weird rage where everything was real but not real? Yeah. Oh.
0: Heidler's accounts of December 3rd and 4th were that he attended the funeral of a stillborn baby... He had fathered that night he walked to the home of a friend where they played pool and watched the men playing dominoes. He had two beers and then walked to his mother's home where he was staying without pain. When people in the home began talking about the stillborn baby, Heidler said he ran out of the house, swiped a friend's van, and then drove u s drove the u s one to Santa Claus after entering the Daniels home. He took a semi-automatic shotgun from a gun cabinet in Kim and Danny's bedroom, then went looking for Jessica, whom he wanted to kill because she jilted him. He remembered continuously pulling the trigger. He even recalled having to reload and how the kick of the shotgun hurt his shoulder with a clamorous thwack of a blast that even hurt his ears. He said he shot Bryant in a trance-like dream and was awakened out of it when Jessica called out his name. After the shootings, he ushered the three kids out of the house into the stolen van. Continuing with the story, Heidler told the officers that he remembered driving to the Alma River Bridge between Appling and Bacon Counties, where he took the 10-year-old to a boat ramp and had sexually assaulted her while her younger sister saw. After the rape, the sobbing victim asked him to get rid of the gun because it was scaring them, so he tossed it in the Alma River where it was never found. He abandoned the girls on a remote road and drove back to his mother's house. Sweet said, although at times Hitler had laughed or cried, he was relatively unaffected by what he had done. He understood what he was saying. We had all the range of emotions, but the gravity of what he had done, he was indifferent to that. For the most inept, cruelest massacre that ever happened in Tombs County history— Death penalty specialist Mike Garrett, the most brilliant and sought-after attorney in Augusta, and public defender Kathy Palmer of Swainsboro, were brought in for the trial. plan of operation would be for the defense attorneys to file a notice of intent to present evidence of mental health issues. After talking with Heidler, Garrett told reporters he's physically sick and mentally disturbed. The defense immediately filed for a change of venue. Garrett and Heidler's would be tried far away from the graveyard and blood spattered house where people still sought, thought Santa Claus was a symbol of good fellowship and gift-sharing. District Attorney Malone agreed that the gruesome trial should be held somewhere else. He said too many times Georgia's Supreme Court overturned death penalty cases from rural counties where cases were grossly overpublicized. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, July 6, 1999, while awaiting tri- trial, Hedler escaped with tracking dogs and helicopters on his heels. News flashes across Georgia said anyone who crossed paths with the 20-year-old escaped convict were in extreme danger. Jailers searching his cell found 75 homemade weapons that he made from unscrewing wire cages and smoke and fire alarms in his cell. They said he would routinely threaten to kill jailers and other inmates who preferred to give him a wide berth. However, in his escape, he didn't get very far. He was quickly captured and returned for trial. The trial opened before a jury of seven men and five women on August 30, 1999 in Judge Walter McMillan-Waltons County Courthouse. Prosecutor Malone said he would seek the death penalty, and Heidler's defense team chose to seek pity from the jurors by using mental illness defense. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Malone painted a bizarre picture of the suspect. He said he was arrested in May for breaking into tailored treasures and stealing porcelain dolls, Nintendo games, and knives. A young mother testified that she had hired Hitler to babysit her three children in exchange for a room in her home. She said he was good with her children and she couldn't have managed without his help. She described him as a quiet person, a regular couch potato who seldom went anywhere and worked on her car. As for his mental level, she said... He was like a teenager in a twenty-year-old body. I've seen him go out looking for jobs, and no one would hire him. I can't believe this is happening. A neighbor who lived next to the Hylers on Twelfth Street in Elma said that the family had lived there for two months. They moved from a government housing project on Mill Street and had no money. In the days that followed, jurors heard from one side or the other about Hyler's tough life or his refusal to accept authority. Born June ninth, nineteen ninety-seven, he became a high school dropout in tenth grade. He never worked. Because soil rhymes with toil, he never owned a car. He never lived in a place that he called his and any money he ever had was mooched from somebody else. Despite his unseemly lifestyle, he was never arrested for violent crimes. Aside from burglarizing Taylor Treasures, he stole a Kawasaki four wheeler from a garage in South Church Street and was currently facing felony accounts in Alma. He was newly on probation in both tombs and Bacon counties for driving while intoxicated. That was the extent of his criminal record. Several of the Daniels' neighbors testified about gathering in their yards and watched police cars, media vans, and dishes with dishes on top, and more strange cars than they had ever seen driving up Dasher Street towards the crime scene. They spoke of the good times they had fishing in the Daniels' pond and picking grapes from their vineyard. They were God-fearing people, one neighbor told the court. They were a storybook family. They took children nobody else wanted and gave them a decent home. County Sheriff Durst testified in his talks with Heidler. His only explanation is that he doesn't know why he did it. He said a dive team that searched the 29-foot-deep Almana River failed to find the murder weapon that Heidler had tossed off the bridge from Highway 1. A defense witness testified that in Heidler's hometown of Alma, 30 miles away from the crime scene, uh, he had enhanced his reputation as the oddball from a family who moved from one place to another like gypsies. He said Heidler had spent time in foster care homes, but eventually had to be placed in a special treatment state-like school because of his emotional problems. Garrett, however, was unable to sway the jury, who, after wrestling with the indecision for all of twenty minutes, found the mass murderer guilty on Friday, September third of nineteen ninety-nine. The penalty phase took less than two hours, and this time they invoked the death penalty. Sickly, scrawny Heidler sniffed and wiped his nose on his shirt as the four death sentences were pronounced. Judge Walter McMillan handed him an additional two life sentences plus 110 years on three counts of kidnapping the three Daniels children and three counts of sodomy and child molestation and one of burglary. burglary. The remaining Daniels children have been placed with relatives. Using mythology almost routine in a case of murder, the Tombs County Sheriff's Department and the GBI had been able to get to the bottom of the matter thus ensuring that justice had been done so good news is i mean court one he's still sitting in jail for the uh death penalty he is not getting out anytime soon um and like they know he did it and besides terrorizing the one girl i mean the other children are still alive they're with family they're not in the foster uh, care system so at least there's that Now, he tried to appeal a lot of the issues from juror selection to saying that the rape wasn't uh, right to saying everything. So this guy is just a complete scumbag. And anyways, all of his appeals had failed in the court system. And the courts basically told him to eat dirt and pound sand. So he is just awaiting his death penalty now
1: is there like a a date already set or is it more just like a place in line
0: I believe just a p- place in line Okay I am not quite sure how the death penalty system works like I'm not necessarily for the death penalty but this guy pretty much deserves it in my opinion
1: mm, very much However uh all those kids that were there are definitely adults now yep so i don't know
0: i hope i i know that they are probably really messed up but i really hope that they are doing okay
1: yeah though i don't know the phrase violence begets violence comes to mind and i'm concerned about that
0: i know but and at least they were placed with other family members and not put back into the system like that's the only saving grace that i found i guess
1: yeah still
0: though yeah Uh. but yeah i know just like reading through what he all tried to appeal like with the juror selection with his actual charges and everything like i'm just like the gall of this guy I i am just astounded by. I'm not going to go into it just because the terms and the actual readings get a little lengthy, but...
1: Yeah, but, like, that assessment of, like, a teenager in an adult's body seems...
0: Pretty accurate.
1: I'd say, yeah. Oh, uh,
0: the one so. thing, though, that he did contest that sometimes does, like, go one way or another is... um. During the trial, they showed the videotape of the crime scene, and he said that was inflammatory and everything, but the judge told him, like, no, it's the crime scene. They're showing evidence. Like, it's Mm. fine. And, like, you did this to them. Like, they didn't change or edit the scene in any way, so. That was, Mm. like, the only, like, decent argument he had, basically, in any of his appeals.
1: So, like, showing him what he did was a way to get a response out of him by the they court, were showing people? evidence
0: so like they were showing the videotape
1: yeah uh, was...
0: of the crime scene and he just said that was inflammatory like cuz like officers as they're going through they explain like who's lying here what had happened that uh, whole thing so like that that sometimes does get thrown out but it was part of the evidence so they just said told him to eat dirt
1: why would that get thrown out Because sometimes
0: what the cops say and, like, how it's presented is kind of aggravating or, like, probing for emotions. So, like, that's...
1: Oh, so, essentially, like, he was trying to say that that was, like, a way to make him seem more guilty. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Because it would make him angry.
0: Yep. So, really, that was the only valid argument, in my opinion, that he had but that was
1: it about was evidence it. so
0: yeah mm. but yeah no talking about the rape and sodomy of the child and that was consensual or like him trying to like get no, that there, lessened not like that it was consensual but yeah, yeah
1: that there's no
0: I mean she's no. a child
1: yeah that's mm, just so much no
0: so much so well everyone that was santa claus georgia and while it's kind of festive themed it was really not that happy of a story but no that murder one
1: yeah so what time of year did that take place
0: christmas time december 4th Ooh. yeah
1: oh well yeah kind of hoping it wasn't but okay
0: yeah, I know. So, like, everything was all, like, decked out in Christmas stuff, too. And, I mean, it's Santa Claus, Georgia.
1: Of course, Santa it's... Claus is a dangerous old town. Yeah. Uh.
0: But that was the first mass murder that happened there. And then there was another one that happened a couple years later. So, they were not really on a good track.
1: Wow. Yeah. That is not good. No. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean,
0: that's all I really have on that. Um he's still, you know, in the Georgia State Prison awaiting his uh death penalty to be carried yeah. out, but yeah. I hope that the kids are okay and um I'm going to be covering some a little bit more jury topics the next couple of cases,
1: so yeah. yeah. Okay. Should I take us out then? Yeah. Alrighty. Well, if you haven't already, please hit subscribe. Give us five stars to share all these stories with those you find would love to hear them and leave a suggestion for other topics as a comment or things you liked, things you didn't know, how your day was. That'd be that'd be fine. We could take comments about that. That'd be cool. And if you'd like to email us directly you can do so at violinvice at gmail.com and you can do a one-time donation on paypal with the same address as that if you want to follow us on social medias you can do so on facebook and instagram at violin podcast leave a like all those fun things i don't know much about instagram but it should be pretty cool with that Or if you just want to give us a quick tweet, you can do so at ViolinVice. Or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ViolinVice. There's no ampersands in any of these. All of it's straight spelled out because we're bumpkins and ampersands are a weird thing to try to write.
0: No ampersands here. I'll put it on a t-shirt.
1: Oh, I love it. But that's all we have, I guess. Oh.
0: Well, we hope you guys had a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas or whatever kind of holiday you celebrate, and we'll see you guys next week.
1: Merry Christmas! Happy holidays! Happy we hope New to Year hear from too! You again, oh yes, Ooh, that's coming up. Yay, 2021! Yay! Hooray! Well, we'll see you later. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Reback. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.